turn with me to Leviticus 11. I'm vacillating between thinking it's very brave or incredibly stupid to to continually try to preach big chunks of Scripture. Maybe you can vote, and we could do a poll on that. But it creates its own challenge, of course. Well, you know that some days are like no other. I'll never forget December 15th, 1987, our firstborn was born in our home. Some of you may know that. We had a home birth, an unplanned home birth. Some days are like days of infamy. I think of December 7th, 1941, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and they propelled us as a nation to use the atomic bomb in response to hasten the end of World War II. Some of you remember where you were when John F. Kennedy was assassinated on November 22nd, 1963. I didn't because I was only two. But I do remember where I was on September 11, 2001, another day like no other, when a group of terrorists commandeered several aircraft and forever threatened our sense of security and changed our national security. Maybe kids, you think of a particular day every year that's special to you, and it stands out kind of like a big mountain among all the other 364 days. Maybe it's your birthday or Christmas or Easter or Thanksgiving or a family reunion, it's a day like no other. And it's on the calendar and you can't wait, even as you ask dad and mom, how many more days? But what about that day when your own sin is slammed up in your face? And it's all over you. It's all around you. And you feel eaten up with uncleanness. You realize you must answer to God, your creator, for what you've done. You sense even a little bit that you've accrued a moral and legal debt to a very holy God. You owe him and you cannot deny it. Perhaps you feel powerless in the grip of sin. It masters you. You cannot break free from its enslaving power. Like when you're handcuffed, not that I've ever been except play handcuffs, and you know it's absolutely impossible for you to break free apart from the key. But there's more. You're all too familiar with your own uncleanness. Our sinful nature is like a stain you think you can never fully wash out. So there's these dimensions of sin that incurs moral and legal liability. It enslaves, but it corrupts. You're one of those who David describes in Psalm 14, 3, where he says there's none who does good not even one. Paul picks, on, picks up on that in his letter 
to the church at Rome. It's our sin that demands God's justice, but it's also his sin that necessitates his mercy. You nod your head, you understand. God would be entirely fair to punish you for your sin. To pour out his wrath upon you with no apology and no restraint because his justice and his holiness are in great demand by virtue of our transgressions. But his mercy is also necessitated by our sin. I think it's always great how the song of the month and the sermon seem to coordinate as they have perfectly today. There really is no other answer than that his mercy is necessitated by our sin. If there is no way for him to deal with us as our sins don't deserve, that is mercy, then we're ruined. And so this brings us to our big idea this morning. Here it is. Christ's sacrifice for our sins satisfies God's judgment and it celebrates his mercy. Think about the two dimensions to that. God's or Christ's sacrifice for our sins both satisfies God's justice but also celebrates his mercy. And so we say at the cross, his justice and his mercy meet perfectly. Like two ends of a huge maybe multi-mile-long bridge that have been constructed from an eastern point and a western point to the last two steel girders come together in some combination of plates, bolts, nuts, and washers, and they come together. So at the cross, God's justice and his mercy finally meet. And the Day of Atonement in the worship and spiritual life of Israel was a day like that, a day like no other. That was Yom Kippur, a day of annual infamy. Something took place on that day, the 10th day of their seventh month in their calendar that never happened on the other 364 days in the year. I want us to think about this morning the what, the why, and the how for what took place on that one special day out of every 365 days. And more importantly, I want us to see how the Day of Atonement anticipated a uniquely special day of one by this sacrificial, substitutionary, once-for-all sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at our outline, if we can, for a moment, if we can get that. As we think of the Day of Atonement, we can better understand how God's justice and his mercy meet at the cross through this picture and study of the Day of Atonement as we see. And I want you to see a very simple outline here. First, the institution of the ceremony, all right? Secondly, we'll see in verses 11 through 14, the sin offering of the high priest. And you'll see the word Himself, You'll notice there, for himself is an expression. You'll see. Thirdly, the sin offering of the people in verses 15 through 19. And then the scapegoat in verses 20 through 28. And finally, the day of atonement as a perpetual statute in the last six verses of our chapter. So first, I want us to consider this institution 
of the ceremony. All right, we'll try to get those bigger in weeks. We're still figuring out how to get this in text on the PowerPoint, but we'll work at enlarging that for some of our older eyes. I want us to walk through these 34 verses, not like a running commentary, but a little bit more in the text than we were even last Sunday night. And then I want us to press some applications from the text into our souls. We'll actually land right back at Psalm 103 like we did for our call to worship. If you're taking notes, you might want to look at Numbers 29, verses 7 through 11. Maybe another time, you don't need to turn there now, but if you're taking notes, 29, 7 through 11, if you'll find where you'll find a five-verse summary of the offerings for that special day. But first here, we have the institution of their ceremony. You don't really see that phrase, but we could call it that. And we're not really aware of how much time had elapsed since the deaths, the very tragic deaths, of Nadab and Abihu in chapter 10, okay? You can go back and you'll notice there they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord and the fire came out from before the Lord, maybe even from inside the veil, some think, and took their lives. It cost them their death. All right? But the message in Leviticus 16, the message from Moses received from Yahweh, intended for Aaron, was clear for this high priest. And here's what it was. Do not, under any circumstances, come on your own terms into the holy place of the tent of meeting and behind the veil because death would be the result. Why? Because Yahweh himself would be in the cloud over the mercy seat. And there were very simple specifications. First, bring two animals for yourself. A bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Second, don't come naked and don't come dressed just any old haphazard, pull it out of the laundry way. The word was to come in the holy linen garments, but only after fully bathing. Third, receive from the people these two goats designated for sin offerings and a single ram for a burnt offering. And what was next? Look at this. Aaron is to offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and his household. And so you won't miss it. You'll notice this is duplicated almost between verse 6 and then verse 11 in the next section. Moses writes about it twice. Nothing is mentioned about the ram, but immediately in verse 7, if you'll keep your eyes on this, Aaron is instructed to take these two male goats. And kids, let me tell you, they were smelly male goats, have no doubt, all right? They weren't taking baths every day like you and me. These are smelly male goats. They were designated for the sin offering. Of course, one would die and one would live. And they cast lots. Aaron was to cast lots from them. It's like rolling dice. If you have ever rolled dice where there's six possibilities, one, two, three, four, five, six, this is what happens in this case. There's only two. One goat is chosen for the Lord, for Yahweh, the other for Azazel. Let me just pause 
on that word for a moment. When you see the word Azazel, that's used in the ESV, it's a little unique. It's a duplication as for goat. So it's a unique word. It could be a place, some think, Azazel, but it could be simply the scapegoat like we see in many faithful translations or this goat, the idea of a goat of like departure, goat, something like the idea of a, depo, a goat that's sent away. And so the goat, one was for the Lord, one for Azazel. The goat chosen for the Lord would be a slain sin offering, but the goat that was chosen for Azazel, that is the scapegoat, would eventually be set free and sent off alive into the wilderness. As I said, it could, could mean a physical location. It could mean scapegoat goat of departure. I'm fine if from this point on we think of it simply as the scapegoat. We've looked at the institution of the ceremony. Look next with me at the sin offering for the high priest in verses 11 through 14. It's important that we understand that the high priest, in this case, this first, the inaugural prototypical high priest, Aaron, was a, a man, a very imperfect man and an imperfect priest. And he had a responsibility prior to offering any sacrifices for the people, right? And it reminds me sometimes when we think of someone who jumps in without thinking to save someone who's drowning because they can't swim, the tragedy is when we discover that the person who jumps in, in fact, can't swim at all, and sometimes both are lost. And so in this case, as a matter of first priority, Aaron was to present the bull as a sin offering for himself. And you'll see how verse 11 essentially restates verse 6. We read this, Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall make atonement for himself and for his house. What's going on there is a reflexive sense of the verb where it's like the ball comes off the wall and comes back to you when you throw it. This, the emphasis here is that first, Aaron's concern is his own standing before the Lord that he might enter into the tent of meeting and then be on the veil. So he shall kill the bull for himself. You see that in, in verse 11. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. But we reserve, and notice that you see more here than the killing of the bull. I want you to ponder this picture that's drawn by verses 12 through 14. Some of you kind of have to put on your own imagination, go to imaginations. And by releasing this incense over the coals, like if you drop anything on hot coals, you get a little spark, a little fire. And there's this then cloud of incense, of sweet-smelling incense as a result, that covers the mercy seat that's over the Ark of the Testimony. So what's the result? What's the, or you might say, what's the purpose? Read the last six words of verse 14. Look at those last six words. So that he does not die. Now look back at verse two, and you'll find essentially the same words when Moses passes on this warning 
from Yahweh to not come into the holy place inside the veil on his own terms. There's the word, so that he may not die, corresponding with, so he does not die, in verse 14. The cloud of incense covered the mercy seat. You ask, who is there? God himself. Remember the end of verse 2. He says, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Now, I want to ask you a question. If you knew right now that you had two handfuls of finely beaten incense in one hand and a censer with burning coals in another, and that you knew that when you passed through this veil and you put that incense on those burning coals and that cloud of incense would rise, that God would appear to you. Can you recognize that in that moment you would never want to do that on your own terms? You understand that. It's like being very careful with something. This is, if you will, a bit of a holy moment. I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But we see more than hot coals and sprinkled incense in this cloud over the the mercy seat. Yes, this is theophany. This is God appearing. But there's redness. Aaron's hands, maybe he goes back outside and he brings, he brings and he sprinkles the red blood of the offered bull inside the veil on the front and then in front of the mercy seat that's covered by the cloud of incense so that there's the cloud of incense with God in it and the mercy seat and the ark of the testimony there on this single day, this once in a year day like no other. And I can see Aaron in obedience to his commission. One, two, three, four, five, Six, seven, completion, but also perfection. And in that moment, Aaron has done what Christ as our high priest had no need to do. Christ as our great high priest presented himself as the sin offering for his people, but not himself. And that brings us now to the sin offering for the people. We see that in verses 15 through 19. Same scene, different focus. Aaron has offered the bull of the sin offering for himself. It's important you understand he sprinkled the blood, right? There in, on the front of and, and, and in front of the mercy seat behind the veil. The carcass and all of that ugly stuff that's outside the tent of meeting. And the cloud has appeared with Yahweh in the midst of it. But now he offers this chosen male goat, the one that was not so, if you would say, spared by the roll of the dice. He offers this chosen smelly male goat for the sin of offering. And that goat was slain for the people. You see that in verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people. And we, we kind of hang on a cliff's edge to ask, 
How is this verse, as so many assert, a key to the Day of Atonement, which is key and pinnacle within the book of Leviticus and within the Pentateuch and really speaks so loudly about the nature of atonement for the whole of the Bible. And here we go. As the blood of that smelly male goat was brought into the holy place within the veil... That is the blood of the goat of the sin offering for the people. It is received as an acceptable offering. What we might say in a word that's been co-opted, legitimate reparation. To cleanse not just the holy place, verse 16, but the tent of meeting and the people of Israel in its entirety. Sin is so corrupting. Kids, I want to just apply this very specifically just for a moment because we talked about sin pollutes. You're not as bad as you could be, but every square inch of you has been stained by sin. And if your parents could have beaten it or washed it out of you, they would have already done so. You need a high priest, a great high priest like our Lord Jesus to make you right before God. You cannot do it. Your parents cannot do it. Obedience to the law cannot do it because you cannot do that perfectly. You need one who is perfect on your behalf. And so sin is so corrupting, so spoiling, that the tent of meeting is described as dwelling, look at this, with them in the midst of their uncleanness at the end of verse 16. See how remarkable verse 16 is here. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Aaron is to make atonement for the holy place, not in spite of their uncleanness, the uncleanness of the people of Israel, not in spite of their transgressions and all the sins of the people of Israel, but look at that word, but because of them. Do I need to read that again for us? Did any of you do a double take? Let me read this, verse 16 again. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. This is more than simply doing it on account of it. And Dane Ortland helps us move to a point that we can see this with a little bit of vacuity. And speaking of our fallenness, he says this about Jesus and how Jesus came to undo our fallenness. Speaking of the Gospels, he says, the cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world about him, 
His deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. Parents, you know how when your kids are disobedient and bad and unlovely, what do they need more in that moment than anything else? They need you moving toward them, not away from them with grace and mercy. And so does the body of Christ. For the sins of the people of Israel, you see, Aaron does with the blood of the goat of the sin offering exactly as he did with the blood of the bull of the sin offering that was offered for himself. And then he comes out to the bronze altar and he sprinkles the blood of both the bull and the goat around and on the horns of that bronze altar for the uncleannesses of the people. When once you've gazed upon the ceremony of the Day of Atonement, you can never sing this song the same way again. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's consider the scapegoat in verses 20 through 28. We've looked at the institution, right? We've looked at these sin offerings, both for Aaron and for the people. Now, think about Azazel, the scapegoat. After the offerings of the bull is a sin offering for Aaron and his household, and then the goat of the sin offering, it was time to offer the scapegoat. Kids, maybe you've heard that phrase. In this case, the scapegoat gets to go free. But a lot of times when we say scapegoat, we are speaking of something that absorbs or takes the blame for something that's gone wrong. Look look with me at verses 20 through 23. Take a look there. Focus a little bit. So taken together, what we want to understand between the sin offering of the goat, the, the, the goat of the sin offering that was slain, was dedicated to Yahweh, or the one that we call Azazel, together these two male goats of the sin offering actually make one whole unified offering. And Matthew Henry explains this as he, as he speaks of the work of the high priest back in verse 8. You might remember in verse 8, There's where Aaron is casting lots over the two goats. Listen to Matthew Henry. He says he must, speaking of Aaron, the high priest, he must then cast lots upon the two goats, which were to make both together one sin offering for the congregation. One of these goats must be slain in token of a satisfaction to be made to God's justice for sin. The other must be sent away in token of the remission or dismissing of sin by the mercy of God. There you have it. God's justice for sin, God's mercy in dismissing or remitting sin. So I want us to see three aspects in this offering of the scapegoat. Notice there's just three things going on. Aaron lays both his hands upon the head of the goat. We saw that, of course, in the very opening chapter of the book of Leviticus. And it's symbolic of the transfer of guilt. 
All right? And then secondly, in Echoes of verse 16, he confesses over it, we read, all the iniquities. Look, at, look for the word all. He confesses over it all the iniquities and all their transgressions and all their sins. Some of their iniquities, some of their transgressions, some of their iniquities of their sins. No, all, all, all. But the ceremony's not ended. Aaron and the man in readiness, the one who let the goat go, or accompanied him to Azazel, to the wilderness, they must remove their clothes and wash themselves. This continued theme of cleanness, the removal of uncleanness that marks the whole of these first 16 chapters of Leviticus. If you have been paying attention, we see Leviticus 1 through 16 is how is atonement made? How are we acceptable for God? There, that we may enter into fellowship with him. And then the remaining chapter, 17 through 27, is what does holiness look like? What does it look like to maintain this fellowship? What is the holiness that Yahweh requires? There's only two burnt offerings that remain. Look at verse 24. Both of these are offered to make atonement. You can see there it says, shall bathe, Right, his body and water in a holy place and put on his garments and come and offer his burnt offering. There's Aaron speaking of the ram of his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people and they come together. The interests of both come together, one for Aaron, one for the people. And like the burnt offering of chapter eight, verse 18 their offering is this pleasing aroma to Yahweh. But the bodies we read, right? The bodies, there at the end of verse 27, about the bull and the male goat, the slain for their sin offerings were to go outside the camp and they were to be burned with fire. You can read that, right? And even after the burning, the one that goes to burn them uh, needed to wash and to be reclothed. This brings us to the last six verses of our exposition this morning. I was to consider this day of atonement as a perpetual statute, a forever statute that was accompanied with fasting on a day of solemn rest. If you haven't figured it out, right? So think about this. That what we get from these last six verses is that for Israel... Under the old covenant, before Christ came, but in anticipation of his coming, giving us a picture of the one who is the fulfillment, the perfect antitype of all that we have here, this was to go on. This was perpetual. It was to be accompanied with fasting and with solemn rest. They point to the seriousness of the commemoration of the Day of Atonement year after year. I want you to think about this when you see the word solemn rest. The presenting need here was our need 
for the removal of our sin, for reparation or expiation of our sin, so for our sin to be dealt with. It's like the idea of paying something in full. You're no longer a debtor to it. And that's not between us and God. Our need for forgiveness. But there's more. Look at verse 31 with me. Notice this. You need to look back at verse 30. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. So there, it's on this day. Now look verse 31. Speaking of that day, that day, it is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. The idea of affliction there is simply you shall fast. It's a day of rest. You shall fast. It's forever. Dr. Michael Morales in his biblical theology in the book of Leviticus points out that really the whole point of this is that God in the house of God is wanting us to, wanting to bring us into the rest that comes with him dwelling with us and we dwelling with him. Having had our hearts cleansed and our consciences made pure and right through the blood of the Lamb. You're listening this morning. Have you ever thought that the whole of the Bible, that actually as, as Adam and Eve are expelled to the east, but now as Aaron is his high priest, he's coming in from the east to enter into the veil, into the holy place where he offers this smoking incense and he sprinkles this blood that God really is about bringing rest to his people. You see, what created enormous chaos and shattered shalom was sin. That was why everyone kept hoping that someone would bring rest, if you read in those first few chapters of Genesis. But rest only comes from the great high priest who can enter the veil by means of his own blood for you and for you and for you and bring you into real rest that's only found through faith in the Son of God. How will we apply this? Turn with me back to Psalm 103. I'd like to return where we began this morning with our call to worship. You have in Jesus Christ a perfect Savior, one who does not need to offer a bull or anything for himself, who has no need for his own cleansing. I want us to to remind you this morning that at the cross for you, or if you're his, that two things have been satisfied. Not just the expression of his all-beautiful mercy 
but his demand for justice. Notice in 103, speaking of God, the one who works righteousness. Notice this very important, verse 6, the very call to worship. There's his righteousness. He works righteousness and justice. Interesting look, he made his way known to Moses. Here we are, his acts to the people of Israel. And not in conflict with the God who works righteousness and justice is the God, Yahweh, who is merciful and gracious. Who is long in the nose, literally slow to anger, or literally long in the nose. Who's abounding like this fountain in Kessid in steadfast love. He's not always giving you the business. He will not always chide. His anger will subside. He does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. And then he uses this picture. You don't know how high the heavens are above the earth, but you know it's a pretty good distance. And David says, so great is Yahweh's steadfast love toward those who fear him. Then he goes from this vertical thing to this horizontal thing, and he says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. But it's more than simply distance. It's relationship, because he says, as a father shows compassion to his children. So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Why? David gives the reason. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. This morning, are you feeling that liability that your sin has brought? How it's hurt others? It's made life complicated. It's introduced pain to others. Are you feeling the dimensions of being enslaved by sin, sins that you're thinking, why can't I break free from this? Why do I still struggle with that when I can talk my way all around it and describe it, but I seem to still have a degree of enslavement to it? Or you just feel so sturdy. You think, God, how can you use me I'm like Isaiah, a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And you, you can imagine saying that, but you can't imagine saying with Isaiah, here am I, send me. He's entered the veil. Once for all time. A perfect sacrifice requires no repeating. I want to close with this quote from Dane Orland. As we think about as a church community that the implication of having our Lord Jesus go through the veil for us 
to completely satisfy both the justice and mercy of God at the cross by means of his own blood, means that within our body we may extend such grace to one another. Dane Ortland says this, we cannot present a reason for Christ to finally close off his heart to his own sheep. No such reason exists. Every human friend has a limit. If we offend enough, if a relationship gets damaged enough, if we betray enough times, we are cast out. The walls go up. But with Christ, our sins and weaknesses are the very resume items that qualify us to approach him. Let us go to the one who became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God.